You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And you can turn to Joshua chapter 16. It may take us a minute, but we'll get there. And I'll explain why it's going to take a minute. You know, some sermons, sometimes we open God's Word, and it's like we're using a microscope. And so you use a microscope to examine something small, and that's usually what we do around here because we go verse by verse, sometimes word by word, focusing in and examining the little part of Scripture. What is God saying right here, right in this place, okay? But other sermons are telescope sermons. So you use a telescope to examine something big. And so there's sometimes we want to see what the whole of Scripture says about a topic, and that's what we're going to do today. I want us to get out our telescopes to look at what the Bible says from cover to cover, really about one specific word. And it's a word that's shown up over and over. We've talked about it a lot in Joshua. It's a word that we love to write songs about. We love to shout amen about, but frankly, we don't always love to live out. The word is promise. Over and over and over again in Joshua, God has called them to believe the promise, walk in the promise, trust the promise. And so to understand what he's talking about in this promise, here we're going we're gonna to get out our telescope. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. We're going to look at four chapters in Joshua, but not just that. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. We're going to go all the way forward to Revelation, and we should be done by kickoff. Don't worry. <laughs> Before we start looking at the scriptures, though, I want to show you all another book that we have uh, in my house. This is a little biography that my wife's grandmother wrote. Uh, just, it's called My Journey of Life, and it's just kind of the story of her life. And man, this is, we treasure this, because she's had quite a life. I mean, going all the way back, think of all that's happened, World War II, uh, and, and all of that. But, so it's not that long, and for a book only this thick, y'all, there are 11 appendices in the back. So in the back of this are 11 appendixes, appendices, I don't know what the plural is. My wife will tell me after this is over. Uh, that are essentially, here, you can, you can see they're essentially like lists. Just a list of like people and places and names. and So I thought I'd, I'd read some of it to you. So this is Appendix 3, George Franklin Land and Family. George Franklin Land, farmer, born 1st of September, 1872, Louisiana. Marriage, Ann Judson Harris, housewife, born 4th of September, 1874. Children, Otha Harrison Land, salesman, gasoline and oil. James Wesleyland, Texaco, drove truck making deliveries. In later years, had a small grocery store in Ruston. Good to know. <laughs> Francis Mary, Fannie Mae Land, housewife, Sibley. George Archie Land, gasoline delivery, service station owner, Ruston, Louisiana. Y'all want to keep going? Yeah. Really? Y'all. Yeah. Here's another. Here's just Appendix 9, Trips. 1945, Sherman, Texas. 1957, Galveston, Texas. 1959, all the way to Lake Narrows, Arkansas. Oh, they lived it up big. 1961, Pensacola, Florida. Wow. Yeah. I'm not getting a lot of amens uh, here. You probably wouldn't want me to read this whole list because it's, it's full of lists and names and places that frankly don't mean much to all of you. 
Y'all, this, this book is a treasure in my house. If the house catches on fire, we're running to grab this thing. Why? Because I know the lives and the people in it. I am loved and love the people in this book. It's my story. It's my wife's story. It's my children's story. And so it's packed with meaning. It tells me my history. We find this a lot in the book of Joshua, especially the place that we're in. You know, this promise that God talks about that it often doesn't come wrapped in these exciting passages and in entertaining ways. It comes in lists. Lists that you read and you think, I have no idea where that is. You read and you think, why would someone name their child that? That sounds cruel. That's a weird name. But understand, y'all, for the people, for the audience, the people reading Joshua, it was packed with meaning because God was telling them through lists and through battles that they were a part of the promise, that the eternal creator, God's plan of redemption included them. But then we also have to remember there's a reason that God preserved that word for us. He could have written it to them, let it be lost in history, but that's not what happened. We have it today. Why? Because that word is for us too. He preserved it for us so that he can tell you, each and every one of you right here today, that you too are a part of that exact same promise. And that's today's big idea. And men and women, this will change your life if you can get this big idea. You are a part of the promise. What exactly is the promise? So this is important. We got to answer that. What exactly is the promise? Well, simply put, here's the promise throughout Scripture. A place to dwell with his people. That's what God promises. A place for God to dwell with his people. And we see this from the very beginning. You can go back Genesis 1 to the Garden of Eden. Have you ever wondered, God creates the earth. It's already perfect. Why make the garden? Why do we need like this special place? Well, God is showing us from the very beginning, I'm going to make a special place where he can dwell in perfect relationship with his people. But then you don't even have to turn the page in your Bible before we ruin it, don't we? We rebel. We don't want to be a part of his promise. We want to build our own kingdom. And then we rebel again in chapter 4 when we murder our own brother. And then by chapter 6, we are told that man's heart is only evil all the time. And so God sends just judgment in the form of a flood. And then in chapter 11, though, we have, a, we have a fresh start, but we ruin it again with the Tower of Babel. Again, we say, we're not really interested in the promise of, of God. We're going to build our own kingdom. Thank you very much. Now, y'all, 11 chapters of Genesis. We have just covered half of human history. That's the first half of human history. We get 11 chapters in, and frankly, y'all, humanity is a dumpster fire. It's a mess. And this promise of Eden, this promise of God making a place to dwell with his people, y'all, it, it seems hopelessly impossible to ever recover again. But then, just then, God reveals himself to a homeless, godless wanderer, a man named Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. It includes three parts. First of all, he promises offspring. What's that? That's a people. He's saying, I'm going to create a people of my own. In fact, if you read the account, it is filled with Genesis 1 and 2 creation language. Second, he promises land. What's that? That's a place, a place for God to dwell with his people. And that's why Joshua, it's not exciting. It's filled with real estate contracts. We may have a couple of nerds in here that love contracts, but that's it. 
But the big, you know, the big deal to them in this promise is not the land. It's the land giver. They know that once they are in the promised land, God is coming to dwell with his people. Third promise, blessing. Now understand, y'all, we, we way messed up the meaning of blessing. Blessing isn't stuff. Blessing is a divine enablement for relationship. God promises Abraham, I'm going to, I'm here. You made a mess. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make a way for us to dwell together, and you can't mess it up. You can't ruin it. And so what does God do? After they're in the land, skip forward in history, he makes the temple. Before that, he makes the tabernacle, and that is the place where he can dwell with his people. It's the next step of the promise, you see. We're going to see the first version of that today. We're going to see God making a place to dwell with his people. Even after we made the mess, he cleans it up. Now you may say, you know what? That's a long time ago. Um, I don't really like history that much. That was never my subject. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with me today? Well, it's still the same promise. It's still the same promise for you and I. Let's read Revelation 21.3. Now this is, this is where all of history is heading. This is how time in history will end. He writes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will remain, will be with them as their God. Y'all, the promise remains unchanged. God is still making a place to dwell with his people. And one day there will be a new earth where God will dwell with his people only completely removed from sin. Finally, we will have that divine blessing. Now, you have to know this. If you don't know this, you won't know how the parts of Scripture fit together. You won't know how the parts of your life fit together. You won't know what you're here for. You, you won't know what all your blessings are for. You won't know what all your trials are for. Your family, your relationships, your possessions. This is what it's all for. This is the promise. This is where it's heading. And we have to understand in many ways, y'all, we're just like the people in Joshua, just like them. The big question for them and the big question for us is, will you live like the promise is true? Will you remember that you are a part of the promise? So let's look at Joshua. Let's look at how these people react and how they, re they handle the promise. We'll start in chapter 16. Now, chapter 16 handles a tribe called Ephraim. Almost all of chapter 16 is a summary of their lands and their boundaries. As they're, remember, they're allotting the specific lands to the specific tribes. So Ephraim, they get their inheritance, and they're supposed to go occupy it. Remember, every place your foot travels, I've given you. So go into all the land that I've given you. God tells them over and over. So they're going to occupy it, cleanse it of all the Canaanites. And you probably know how this is going to go before we read. But let's read in verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So they fall short. They fall short of full obedience. They drive out some of the people, but not the people specifically of Gezer. And the sense we get from the text is, it's not like they tried and failed. They just, they didn't even try. In fact, they said, we've got a better idea. Forget the promise of God. We, we know what we're going to do. Instead of drive them out, let's force them into slavery. 
Now, why, why would they do that? Yeah, you know, simply put, greed. Why well, drive them out? We can put them to work for us. This will be great. We, we saw how the Egyptians built this whole society on slavery. Let's do the same thing. They chose prosperity over the promise. It was a huge mistake. You may have picked up on those ominous words, those three ominous words that we've seen repeatedly in Joshua to this day. The result of their incomplete obedience, really their disobedience, linger to this day. And we know, we know within 100 years, these Israelites, they're going to adopt the worship of these Canaanites that they left behind. And it, that includes all kind of lewd rituals and child, child sacrifices and idols. We also know that eventually these Canaanites, they're going to grow, they're going to form alliances, and they're actually going to enslave the people of Israel. And men and women, that is how it always works. That's how it always plays out. When it comes to sin, you, you may think you're enslaving it, but it is enslaving you. You may think you're controlling it, but it will end up controlling you. And don't you wish, don't you just wish back before they did that way at the beginning, don't you just wish somebody would have stood up and reminded them, we don't need this. No amount of prosperity can stop, can stop or top the promise. Let's trust God. Let's treat this land like it's his, not ours. Let's desire him more than material blessings. Oh, how things could have been different. But you know what? We, we must tell ourselves the same things. Heads up, guys. Y'all, we live in the most materialistic, prosperous culture the world has ever known. And so living here, you, you, have to, you have to find ways to tell yourself no amount of prosperity can top the promise. We have to remind ourselves daily that we are a part of the promise. We are a part of something way bigger than what's right in front of our faces right here. God is making a place to dwell with his people. But thankfully, there's some good examples in Joshua. There are some who do better. There are some... They bet everything. They bet everything that the promise is true. So let's look at chapter 17. So chapter 17 is mostly about the land that gets allotted to the tribe of Manasseh. And the first people in Manasseh we meet are called the daughters of Zelophehad. Now there's a name. You know, I thought that sounded like a bad name, but then I read that his brother's name was Heifer. I'm like, that's not much better. Little background here. So in Numbers 27, Zelophehad died, and he died because he didn't believe Caleb and Joshua when they went and spouted the land, and they saw, you know, they saw big God and little people. Everyone else saw big, had a little God, and they saw big people. So he died, and when he died, he died without sons. And so obviously back then, uh, the custom was that inheritance only went to the sons. That was the earthly custom at the time. And so his daughters approached Moses with bold faith, and they say, hey, Moses, we're a part of the promise too. And you know what Moses says? Moses says, you're right. You are. And so you will have an inheritance. And so the promise of God defied all human custom and tradition. And so fast forward, now back in Joshua, there they are, midst the land, and these daughters step forward. Let's read verse 4 through 6. It says, They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, 
and the leaders and said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers and their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh 10 portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons, the land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. So these women, they bet it all on the fact that they are a part of the promise. These daughters, they should have had no rights according to human convention at the time, but by faith, they asked to be some of the people who have a place where God will dwell. We've seen this kind of faith over and over. We saw the same faith in Caleb, a Gentile, who demonstrated his faith by asking God for the land of the giants, Hebron. By the way, you know what Hebron means? Hebron means fellowship with God. That's all Caleb wanted, fellowship with God. We saw the same faith in Rahab. Rahab the harlot who said, listen, I, I know I'm the lowest in society and I know I'm one of the bad guys, but I've heard about your God. I want to be part of the promise too. And listen, y'all, the text is clear. None of these people are asking for land because they want to be like real estate moguls, okay? They want the land because they know that's where God is. They want to be part of the promise, God dwelling with man. And so they say, if that's where God is, that's where I want to be. You know, the New Testament says, the New Testament says God richly rewards those who diligently seek him. Jesus said, hey, seek and you will find me. Y'all, God loves it when we ask for his promises. When we claim our inheritance, God loves it. When we bet it all, that we can be part of the promise too. And the Bible here is saying, listen, if, if the daughters of Zelophehad and Caleb and Rahab can be a part of the promise, you can too. Anyone can. Seek it. Ask for it. Have faith in it. Well, these amazing women, they, they stand in stark contrast to the rest of Manasseh. So the rest of chapter 17, I can, I can really summarize the rest of Manasseh in two words. They essentially spend the rest of the chapter going, but God. Manasseh, I don't know if it, it's probably not, but it should be Hebrew for whining, okay? In verse 14, they say, but God, we don't have enough land. Even though, y'all, they have more land than any other tribe. It's never enough. You know, there's an old saying, it's not in the Bible, but it probably should be. He who has been given much complains much. That one hit a little too close to home for me. In verse 16, they're like, but God, they have big chariots made of iron. Even though they have witnessed God defeat much stronger enemies. In fact, they have seen God defeat every army they faced. The picture here is just a complete breakdown of faith. And we we read the book and we're, you know, the crossing of the Jordan and Jericho and the giants. We're like, how could they? It's because they forgot. They forgot that they were part of the promise and they got distracted. They got distracted by comparison. They got distracted by the worries of life. And so Joshua tells them, I encourage you to go read it this week. He tells them, just, just go take it. God has given it to you. Just go take it. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. And then... Something surprising happens. Maybe, maybe the most gracious thing we've seen God do in the whole book. 
Because if I'm God at this point, I'm ready to smite some people. I'm like, separate the daughters of Zohophat, everyone else over here, and wham! That's not what he does. God does something to bring the promise closer than it's been since Eden. So let's pick it up in chapter 18, verse 1. It says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now, it's a simple couple sentences. It's simply put, it's easy to miss. But they go to this place called Shiloh. Now, this is the first time Shiloh has been mentioned in the Bible. It's a big deal in Scripture. Shiloh, it comes from the same root word as shalom. It means peace. It means rest. It means tranquility. In fact, it harkens back to the seventh day of creation where all the work was done and so God rested. It's a reminder to us that that we don't have peace. Listen, we'll have peace not when the right politician gets elected or we have the right job or our kids are happy. No, no, no. We will have peace when God has made a place to dwell with his people. That's when we'll have peace. And there are several signs right here in the text that God has to do something new in Shiloh, that they understood that this was something big. First, we have the whole people gathered together, all the people of Israel. Second, we have the tabernacle there where it says the tent. That's the tabernacle. Now, between the Ark of the Covenant and until the permanent temple gets built, this tabernacle is the place where God dwells with his people. It is the epicenter of his presence for Israel. It is super important throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there is more space in your Bible devoted to the tabernacle than to anything else except for God himself. Fifty chapters in the Old Testament are about the tabernacle. And this right here is the first time the tabernacle has been set up in the promised land. It went with them through the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan. It's the first time they set it up on this side of the Jordan River. And then we have the statement that the land has been subdued. It's that same marker we've seen over and over in Joshua. The land had a rest for more. It's a signal throughout Joshua that God has accomplished his promise, all that he said that he would do. So this is the fulfillment of a promise. You can go read this promise in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Add it to your reading this week. Deuteronomy 12, it's just before the nation is about to enter the promised land. The Lord promises Moses, hey, hey Moses, listen, after the land's been conquered and it's all been allotted, Hello, that's where we are. That's what's happened in Joshua. So after that, God would choose for himself a place to dwell with his people and set up his tabernacle. And it specifically says that they can dwell faithfully, joyfully, and securely in the presence of God. And all of this is happening now in 18.1. In Shiloh, God fulfills his promise. Now, you would think, okay, surely now, Surely now God's people won't forget. They will trust the promise. Maybe now the second half of human history will be very different than the first half of human history. Well, let's read. Pick it up in verse 2. It says, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. So we have seven tribes left. They haven't, these seven tribes haven't gone out and occupied their part of the land. And so in verse 3, Joshua asked them, how long is it going to take, guys? 
How long will you put off going in? That phrase, that question uh, that Joshua asked them, it, it can be translated, how long will you be slack in going in? And so it's a word picture. It's a word picture of, of letting go of something, of your hand going slack. And so it has this connotation of, of negligence or of carelessness. And so you may picture, you know, a boxer that maybe later in the round starts to get a little lazy and, and drop his hands and, and not protect himself. His hands kind of go slack. You know, I can't help but think maybe, maybe some of us here today have grown a little slack. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're just chilling. I don't know. For whatever reason, you've gotten lazy, you've gotten distracted, you've gotten careless. Hear what Joshua says to them. You are part of the promise. Go and take it. Get to work, he says. And then what he tells them in verse 4, oh, this is so telling. He tells them, go up and down the land. That phrase goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where it describes God going, walking back and forth, up and down Eden. And so he's not saying, hey, just go take a casual stroll, you know, a leisurely stroll around. No, no, no. This, this phrase is going up and down. It is God exercising his rule and his reign over a place. It's God saying, this place is mine and I rule over it. And so you see, this is amazing. This is why I love the scriptures. The scriptures are connecting the dots of the promise for us. From the very beginning, God has been making a place to dwell with his people. That's what he was doing then, and that's what he is doing now. And so Joshua is telling them, you can walk up and down the land because God has already walked up and down the land. He is fulfilling his promise. You know, I think if we're, if we're honest, y'all, and it is so easy to read about Israel and read about, you know, these chapters in Joshua and think, man, those silly people, what are they doing? They made it all that way. They've done all the hard stuff and they're so close. They've seen all can, God can do. They've come all this way. It's, it's right there. Why don't they just go a little farther? Why don't they just do what God's asking them to do? Why don't they want to experience all that God has for them? Until you realize, at least I realized this week, Gang, we do the same thing every day, don't we? Came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, most Christians, as to the river of experience, are only up to the ankles. Some have waited till the stream is up to their knees. A few find it chest high, and but a few, oh, how few, find it a river to swim in the bottom of which they cannot touch. You know, I think over and over again, if we're honest, we choose prosperity over the promise. We whine and we say, but God, we grow slack. We grow careless in our walk with the Lord. And we forget just like they did that we are a part of the promise. Only, only if you think about it, in a way, y'all, we're way worse than them. You may not realize it, but we have an understanding of the promise that's way bigger than what they had. Way bigger than anything that they could ever see, we have seen. 
So Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 helps us understand this. So Hebrews 8 says this tabernacle, this tabernacle that they set up in Shiloh that was such a big deal, it was just a shadow. It was just a copy. It was like a model of something greater. That's why the tabernacle is so important. It's not just about the tabernacle. Did you know this? Do you know who the first person to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit was? It wasn't like Moses or Noah or David or any, you know, what we think of the biblical heroes. It was a guy named Bezalel. Bezalel is the guy whose job it was to build the tabernacle. God said, I care so much that this tabernacle is built according to my exact specifications that I'm going to send my spirit to make sure it gets done right. Why? Well, it's not because it's going to be featured on HGTV or something. It's because the tabernacle was pointing to something so much greater. And then one day, John, the gospel writer, he wrote John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as from the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, listen, gang, this, the real thing the tabernacle was pointing to, it's not a thing, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And when he writes that word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt, you're never going to believe what that word is. Tabernacle. He's saying Jesus came and tabernacled among us. God has come to dwell with his people. So it's like this. So you can think of this tabernacle, it's like this. It's like a Hot Wheels car. It's a model. Now, it may tell me what a car looks like. And I don't know if there's ever really a car that really looks like this. Maybe. It's got a nice paint job. But y'all, can I get in and drive this thing? No. It's not the real thing, right? John is saying, hey, in Jesus, the real hot rod, the real car is now parked in your garage, ready for you to drive. Which means, y'all, when we choose prosperity over the promise, when we have our but God moments, when we grow slack, we're not just neglecting some little, you know, Hot Wheels model. We are neglecting the real thing. We are letting the hot rod sit in our garage, undriven and unused. Hebrews 4.16 says, you, right now, right here today, you can draw near to God. You can be in his presence with confidence. You can have all the mercy and grace you need to do so. You don't have to go to Shiloh. You don't have to walk in some tent to do it. Right now, you can be God's people in God's presence. Ephesians 1.3 says, right now, today, in White House, Texas, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then it's like those commercials, but wait, there's more. 1 Peter 1, 3-4, let's look at this. This is amazing. Y'all, the people in Joshua would have loved to see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Y'all, how many times have we seen that word in Joshua, an inheritance, something that is from God gifted to us? We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for who? For you. Kept in heaven for you. 
that promise, a place for God to dwell with his people, he has one more step to take. And, you know, I know kind of in pop culture, we kind of depict eternal life as we're all kind of floating as ghosts, listening to Bill Gaither music, play it on the harp, you know, and but that's not biblical. That's not what the scriptures point to. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Okay, so Israel, they had a physical manifestation of the promise, okay? The tabernacle in this specific land. We have a spiritual manifestation of the promise through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. One day, we'll have both. That's the promise. The promise for you and me is resurrection, a new heaven, and a new earth where God dwells with his people. And it says this inheritance is certain. It is kept for you. It will not fade. No sin can ever defile it. And he calls it, in 1 Peter, he calls this a living hope. A living hope for us. Well, what does that mean? That means God is saying to you, just like he did to the people of Joshua, live like it's true. Don't lose heart. Don't get distracted. Don't settle for something less. Don't forget today that you are a part of the promise for all eternity. You know, most of you probably saw, probably remembered a few weeks ago when Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin suffered a, a sudden cardiac arrest during a football game against the Cincinnati Bengals. It was a shocking event, a tragic event. It, it appeared at the moment like a terrible tragedy. Hamlin, he came very close to losing his life in that very moment. But he survived. He survived and he made a, a full recovery. And just this past week, DeMar Hamlin appeared at the NFL Awards. He gave a speech that was short, but it was very powerful. I want to read you some of his words. He said this, Sudden cardiac arrest was nothing I would have ever chosen to be a part of my story. But that's because sometimes our own visions are too small, even when we think we're seeing the bigger picture. My vision was about playing in the NFL and being the best player I could be. But God's plan was to have a purpose greater than any game in the world. I have a long journey ahead, a journey full of unknowns and a journey full of milestones but it's a lot easier to face your fears when you know your purpose. And when saying, listen, that, that should have, what should have been the worst day of my life actually became the best because I realize I'm part of the promise that my life is about something far bigger than just my life. How about you this morning? Are you part of the promise? If not, you can be simply by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, we'd love to talk to you today. If you are part of the promise, are you living like it's true? Is it the purpose and the hope of your life? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.